0: I thank you kindly for firing up the podcast system. That's cast with an E,
1: podcast system.
0: With me, Lovey. And yes, that is my real name. Every episode, I tackle something new in the world of politics, pop culture, race, and the lack of relations. Be sure to subscribe and enjoy every shady moment. Be hashtag blessed, y'all. You know you're filthy. You know you're filthy. The podcast system. Race and medicine has recently come a hot topic, but for many of us in the know... It has been a long-standing issue in black and brown communities. I myself experienced some extremely tense moments during the birth of my first son while living in New York City's Washington Heights. Today's episode, I proudly welcome my former Prep9 friend, classmate, and advisor, Dr. Eduardo Medina, to the show. Dr. Adorno-Medina is a board-certified family physician at the Park Nicolette Clinic, Minneapolis, and adjunct assistant professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School, Department of Family Medicine, and community health published in journals such as the New England Journal of Medicine and the Journal of the American Medical Association. Dr. Medina completed his MPH at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health and his MD and family medicine residency at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Dr. Medina earned an undergraduate degree in Latin American studies with a concentration in sociology from Wesleyan University. He is a proud alumnus of PrEP for Prep 9. Welcome to the show, Dr. Medina.
1: But I think I can call you you
0: Eduardo because we are family and... We go back. (laughs) We go way, way back. Way back. So what was the year? 1995?
1: Now, you were contingent six. Six. Yeah, so you were five, right? I was five. You were six. That was 95. No, no, no. We're talking about ninety. Yeah, you're
0: right. Because I graduated from '97,
1: so you graduated
0: '96. So I
1: mean, the best time to be a kid in New York '90s. <laughs> and I was just thinking about how hot it used to be in the summer. How much oh my- I miss that. <laughs> just those hot New York summers.
0: I can still, honestly, I can still smell this, oh, yeah. and I know it sounds really. Odd if you're not from New York, but I can still smell the New York City summer streets. And it's not like a bad smell. Like, I remember the backpacks. We had these massive backpacks with all of our books. Heavy. And you lived in Queens, too, didn't you? Weren't you from Queens? I lived in, yep.
1: I was in Jamaica, yep.
0: So we were the two Fair Zone people. Like, we. Oh my God, forget it. You know, we would travel legitimately. I think it took me like an hour and 20, an hour and 30 minutes to get to prep oh, yeah. for summer When I was an advisor,
1: I, I stopped going home. I was like, I'm not going home. just find sense. a friend. I,
0: find yeah, a friend. I would just, I would
1: just <laughs> go out and go back to school the next day. I I, I remember having to buy like a, a new shirt at like the Gap on Columbus Avenue or yes, something. Yes, yes. There There's a Gap right there on like 86. It was. Every I can't I can't go to work with the same same clothes on.
0: Oh my God. those oh. are really those are really good summers. so let's let's first go back to those summers. So the program and and I've mentioned it in previous episodes, but not really delve too far into what prep nine is, but in a nutshell, it's a program that prepares young students of color primarily, black and Hispanic students from New York City
1: mm-hmm.
0: to who are academically qualified already. So I, I, mm-hmm. I preface by saying that because a lot of us I think could have gone off to a lot of these schools academically speaking and done well, but they yeah. prepared us in a way where we knew the language. So yeah. academically, we were reading Chaucer and Canterbury, you know, like the whole. Oh night. my God! Yeah. <laughs> Juan de la Pril, yeah. the sure sota, the drought of March have of pierced Rota. Like why yep. I remember that I don't know. 14 months straight, two summers, and an academic year, we all prepare before we go off to boarding school. What brought you to prep and sort of give us a background of like, you know. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I was thinking about that the other day, and I have to ask my parents, because I I was the only kid in my school. So I went to, I was out in Queens, Fresh Meadows. I went to uh, George J. Ryan, 216. Mm-hmm. And I was in like the oh, right? yeah. ESP. Oh yeah, ESP
0: class, like the special class, yeah. right the top which, two.
1: Which in itself is like you know if you so they do this thing in New York City where they would track. It's called it was literally called tracking. Yeah. And like the quote unquote high uh, the, the the not they wouldn't say intelligence, but the the, the kids that, that excelled at the tests, the Vre test, the yeah. tests, the reading, method, would get tracked into a higher class and then there was the literally it said we were the high class the middle class and the fucking low class can i correct yep. on this one? oh yeah you can okay the, <laughs> the low class i mean literally they call these kids the low class and I, New York. I don't have to explain to you what do you think the color variation was yeah. in this you know system this, this this, this category it was just so you know so anyway i was in the esp class in ryan and i don't know I don't know how. I, I, I have no idea. I think it must have been a guidance counselor. Anyway, we take the PSAT test. Yep. You know, we have these. I remember having these interviews near Trinity, and my parents the whole time were like, "Free extra school, sign them up." <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? It's right. like, oh, we don't have, we don't have to pay for this. Sign them up. <laughs>
0: what you're going to classes you know? on Saturday and the summer? We're yeah. in.
1: <laughs> and they, we're in. they never even really thought about. Me going away like that was no. not part of it. They were like, "Yo, this is free. You're, <laughs> you're gone. Get on the subway. It's gonna take you three hours to get to And you know, it's fine. It's fine.
0: It's you know, true.
1: He'll be fine. And I remember, it was funny, you know, as I as you progress, so you do your you do your first summer. Yeah. And that was such a good time, man. There was such a good vibe. There was such a good vibe on that. Just all of us kind of convening on. If, it was Trinity. The whole time I was there, and then yeah, was I was
0: also on. just just Trinity. No, I was Trinity and Dalton.
1: Yeah, no, I never. We was we were Trinity the whole way. Oh, uh, okay. So it would be that there was that McDonald's there, right on, on the, the corner, uh, right on the corner. Ninety first. I remember. <laughs> you know, I didn't know the Upper West Side like that. I knew the Lower East Side. That's where I went to. Uh, to to I was in daycare, when so My parents met. Was at the Children's Liberation School on the mm-hmm. Lower East Side? But I didn't know the Upper West Side like that. You know, and you're walking down Columbus Avenue and Amsterdam Avenue and you see all the nannies and, you know... The park it's just like, the, yeah. yeah, the park. It's just like a new, you know, getting to know a new part of the city. And it was just so beautiful, man. I, I, I have a lot of fond memories of that time.
0: That's really so, that's really great to hear because I know for some people it wasn't always so pleasant of a experience for the first summer, but yeah. I'm glad you felt that way.
1: But even the, even if it was hard... I didn't, I felt like there was a supportive. I mean, people still, oh, yeah. you know, we're, we're kids, you know, so they're still, but people still got along for the most part, I think.
0: I did. I mean, I, you know, as yeah. quirky as I was at the time, I still had my crew. Yeah, I
1: had, I had <laughs> no. we had the people from Queens, you had no. the people from the different high schools, Mott Hall, Skyler. Every, it reminded every... me of Warriors, you know what I'm saying? Like it's everyone always... was coming. Coming together. I don't think there was anyone from Staten Island. I don't remember any Stat maybe there was some Staten Island. I think there I was remember.
0: one Staten Island kid like in the entire Prep Nine history. And you know, like my heart goes out know. to whoever that yeah. is, but that's I a mean, like yeah. being from Queens was enough. You know, like yep. being from Queens was enough of we a We had the
1: Queens, we had the Brooklyn, we had the Bronx.
0: But it really it was, was, awesome. was. It was, it was like all Hall, Philippa Schuyler yeah, yeah. and then the rest of you. <laughs>
1: Now, is that Skyler? Is that the same Skylar? It is. Hamilton? Oh, it
0: is, me. which I just oh, did an episode you're on.
1: You're kidding me. Oh yes. We is. could talk about that, but, you know.
0: That's a whole,
1: yeah. That's well. a whole other thing. So, <laughs> but anyway, so prep, so I'll tell you a funny story. You know, we, we um, you know, we, we go to the school and my, my friends in junior high school didn't really get what was going on. Yeah. They were like, they were like, you're going to school in the summer, and then you got to go to school on Saturdays.
0: I thought you were smart, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. And then they're like, they're like, you're going, like, you're going away. It is around that time you only went away if something bad happened. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going up, I'm going upstate. You know, something, What'd you do? something What you do, man? It, I know, but <laughs> it was weird because you know everyone. You know, I remember graduating from junior high, and everyone's going to towns and Harris. Yep. Cardozo Stuyvesant and then they're like uh, Brooklyn Medina Tech. it's yeah. going to Deerfield Academy and it's like what where's you that know, what, what the hell is that
0: is he going to military school yeah a
1: mil- I know so so the interesting thing is I remember going through all this and my parents really never never engage with me on the level like yo you're actually you're 14 you're gonna you're gonna go away like you, you're leaving which I, I I wonder now about like would I send my daughter away when she was 14 I don't know not not after reading those you know black and Deerfield Thing. I, I, it's it's scary and I, I think they I think that I think that they were scared and, and one thing I remember very clearly is that my father showed me this book right mm-hmm. and it was this book about how American Indians in this country had been taken away and put in the boarding schools oh. and he was like yo you know I want you to understand that these places he said these these places are wasp factories mm. And I was like, oh, I was like, yeah, you know, in prep, they didn't. We we were all in, you know. What I'm saying we were so in. You, Eye you on the exposed. prize. We yeah. went to Choate, and you know, you just you were there to like make it to that to that goal. That we very rarely, I think, stood back and stepped, except for the Edmund Perry thing, and yeah. had some reflect reflection about the larger process. And again, I I don't know if you know we could have even you know had that intellectually you know understood what we were about to you know, embark on. But I remember my father telling me this, like, yo, you know, this is not just about getting education. You know, these places are there. There's a culture there. They're there to, to a certain degree, mold you into a way of thinking. And, I mean, he views it. If you look at the example of what happened to American Indian communities in this country, I mean, they had to cut their hair. Yeah, They couldn't speak their language. You You had to look the part. You had to look. And one of the saddest things is that sometimes these kids would die at the schools and they would never let their parents know, so the parents would go to the train stations, wait for their children to come back, and the children would never be there. So this oh is part goodness. of the history. It's part of the history of the United States, you know? So my, my father lays this on me, and I'm like, oh, shit.
0: Right before like, you're going off to school. Yeah, right. yeah.
1: Like, because he was, I think he was almost like, you don't have to go. You know, mm. you got this education. You're good. We could have gone to, I think I got into Brooklyn Tech. We could have gone to uh, any other school in the city. Right. And I think only many, many years later, you know, it, it dawned on me, I was like, damn, like, that's, that's what he was trying to tell me, you know?
0: Right. Give you the option. Mm -hmm.
1: Give me the option. And, and to see, you know, now we reflect back on our experience in these places. You see what he was trying to say that, that we were there often fending for ourselves. You know, there there weren't, there weren't a lot of faculty there.
0: We didn't know our fellow classmate, Ruthie, like she, you know, she and I went to middle school together and, Mm. Ruthie came here from Peru, not speaking English. And I remember I had just moved to Queens too. And so we were like two awkward peas in a pod. Mm -hmm. And so that already seemed like an uncomfortable world to navigate of being new kids at a new school in a new borough, Yeah, she's in a new country. And so when prep came, it almost seemed like this was the saving grace. This was the program that was going to save us from what was surrounding us, whatever that was. You know, I was legitimately, I thought, Things were great. I was happy in school. I did well enough. Yeah. You know, I wasn't like a, mm-hmm. the social king, queen kind of person, but I was happy. Yeah. A lot of this stuff, reading those Black at Chote, Black at dot, 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 didn't hit me until now.
1: Yes. I felt the same way.
0: Like, I was I just like, same
1: way.
0: go golden blue. Like, I'm a chody yeah. to the day I die. And, and it didn't occur to me until I started reading some of that where I'm like, man, no wonder I quit. Econ- yeah, yeah. No wonder it was I quit economics. It was a hostile
1: environment. It was a hostile environment, and and you know all those those things happen to us. You know all those you know the, the all those experiences that that are documented in this, which I'm you know I'm, I'm glad that finally that's out in the in the open, but to see it happen to somebody else, it, it hit me. It hit me very hard. Yep. And I was like, God damn, you know, like
0: we should have protected them.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, how, how how can these faculties at these schools just like let this happen? So one part of our experience, I, I think the other thing too is important to mention is that how incredible it was to be with all these kids throughout New York City, you know, and we've I made lifelong bonds, you yeah. know, or certainly, you know, you're evidence of that with prep, but then how we evolved, you know what I'm saying? So we went to high school, then we went to college, and then, you know, we all went on into our careers, and it's just, it's an incredible experience, you know? And we never lost, I, I feel like one of the nice things about prep is that we always had that swagger. Yes. You know? <laughs> like, we knew we worked hard. And we knew we earned that. So you couldn't tell a shit. Like, I don't you care really who couldn't. you, you could, I don't care who you were, you know, fifth, leg, fifth generation, legacy. You know, I earned a place at this school. Listen, and... by
0: the time we were 14, we had done more work and I don't just yeah. mean academically, I mean, emotionally, socially, yeah. Yeah. you know, I remember kids who would go home on the subway, get jumped, you know, somebody would steal their backpack and they'd show up the next day back in class, slightly bruised and everyone would be like, all right. You know, we'd get them a new set of books and it was just like, we just keep rolling because that's what yeah. we had to do. There wasn't a, there weren't pity parties, you know. Like I don't remember anybody in prep coming to classes on a Saturday being like, you know, the train, the number 2 was really late and I was just feeling <laughs> really emotional and so I just don't think I can do today. Like I don't yeah. think that ever. Happened. No. No. <laughs> but... no, which
1: is why it's why it's good to do this as a child, you know. If they ask me to do that now, I'll oh, probably be no. like, uh, no thank you.
0: No, I don't have that in me. <laughs> I'm tired. Yeah. I'm tired. Yeah.
1: But, but it's n- it's incredible. It's, you know, we have to talk about the history of it. You know, it started in 1978. It's like a public school teacher who saw, you know, he had a foot in the private school world and a foot in the public school world. And he said, hey, my public school students could go toe for toe yep. with these Horace Mann students, but they just don't have the access. And we didn't We didn't have that access. I was the first person in my family who were in boarding school. And I think I've been the first person since. I don't, know, I don't think anybody else can come.
0: I had, my sister went, but she went through ABC And then my brother followed suit and he went to Milton and you know, he has a story that, you know, a percentage of our peers do where you you're reading about them now where it's Mm. like a bunch of kids get involved in an outing and lo and behold, the one kid to get kicked out happens to be the black kid who's on scholarship, you know, while everyone else is somehow.
1: They cruise. Yeah.
0: Right. They write a letter of apology to the, to the board of trustees. And and it's a fait accompli. It's interesting to me. And I think what I'm, also fangirling if if I can say, I was always impressed by the number of people who ended up in medicine. And for some reason, and maybe it's like so stereotypical, right? Like my parents are like, you'll either be a doctor or a lawyer or a lawyer. (laughs) An engineer. Like that's it. That's like you got three jobs. Like pick one of those three. So whenever I saw people in prep move on into medicine, I was always like, yes, Like, you're doing this not just for yourself, but I feel like you're doing this for me. You're making Mm -hmm. my dad proud. Like, my mom is proud of you. You know what I mean? Like, legitimately, my parents tacked on to other kids in prep like they were their own children in a way. Mm -hmm. You know? And they were just so proud to see how they were doing. Yeah, there was definitely
1: a family vibe. Yep. We we shared our successes. We shared our challenges. You know, it was a community. Well, we had to because we had to take all those bus rides. Up to, uh, God, you know, we were visiting all these schools, so our families had to get, you know, get, get along.
0: Man, to go back but. and really rethink those, I don't know how we did it, I don't know how prep pulled it off, but they did to shuttle 50, 60 families yeah, on right. buses from New York City to Exeter, New Hampshire.
1: Yeah, you know, That's to, far.
0: to visit a school in the middle of nowhere and trust that. These strangers are gonna take care of your kids for the next four years. I know, I know. It's something <laughs> I know. I,
1: I know that they were scared. I, I mean, I, there's a little bit of razzle dazzle, you know, you're like, look at these places. You know, you, you only see that stuff in the movies, but they must've been, they must've been like, wow, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my kid here. Like who's gonna watch them?
0: Right. You get a hold of them. Like there was, I know, I know there was this a This was line. before
1: cell phones. This was we had, before- We had the hall you know? phones. We had yeah, hall absolutely. phones
0: in our dorm. We're yep. like if it rang and somebody happened to walk by, they pick it they, up. Right, they'd have to come up the stairs and be like, "Love your dad's on the phone again."
1: Yeah, yep. <laughs>
0: like...
1: This was before. I remember when email first came out. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, we're old, yo. I remember when I got my first. It was like I was like a senior, and I was I had this. E- we, they gave us all these email addresses at .dot edu.
0: Yeah, and they didn't God. figure out how to limit people from replying all to, like, the entire yeah. school until, yeah. like, oh my know, God. six months so in. Old, yeah. So when did you realize that you wanted to go into medicine? Like, when was that first? It's I
1: think everyone's path to medicine is is obviously a little different, but, but I, I, I'm not surprised that a lot of it starts earlier. Mm-hmm. So with me in particular, you know, my father was a public school science teacher. He taught science for, you know, 30-something years in the New York City public school system. My mom was an ESL teacher and eventually was an an AP. But they were both very, very politically active, you know, uh, when they were younger. So my father's an immigrant from Colombia. My mother was born in New York, but went back and forth to Puerto Rico throughout, throughout growing up. So she had, you know, she was kind of in both. Uh, places. And they were active in a lot of political organizations in the 60s and 70s. I would study about, you know, particularly healthcare in New York City. Mm-hmm. In that time, you have the Lincoln Hospital takeover, right? So there's people that live are, are up in, Lincoln Hospital's in the Bronx, right? Yeah. The Bronx mm-hmm. was, in Harvard, was in the Bronx, right? So you have people living around the hospital, and, and this happens a lot in hospitals, that they're located in poor communities. And the surrounding, immediate surrounding communities are often very, very poor, the people that, that that clean the hospitals, that make the hospital function, are from the neighborhood. Right. But the doctors are all, you know, usually from somewhere else. And often the quality of the health care in these poor communities, not surprisingly, it's not, you know, their, their health status is not very good. So, you know, people, people, uh, you know, particularly the Young Lords Party, there was an organization called the Health Revolutionary H Room, mm-hmm. Health Revolutionary Union Movement, I believe. They took over Lincoln Hospital. And they said, hey, you know, this hospital should be serving our communities, you know, and and it's not. We don't have access to this hospital often. Uh, they were not treated well. Right. Uh, there's a guy that wrote this guy, uh, Fitzhugh McMullen, actually recently passed away that wrote a book about this. He was a he was one of the doctor that Lincoln that partnered with the community when they took over the hospital. It's called uh, Clench Fist White Coat. I think that's
0: okay. the name of the book.
1: So my parents were my parents again were active in these movements the synthesis of both this kind of political education but also you know a love and a passion for science you, you know that you pour all that into your kids right you know yeah. you just you want them to know what you know so when uh, I, when i was 12 i was diagnosed with diabetes like a type 1 diabetes right Oh i
0: didn't even know that
1: yeah yeah i got type 1 diabetes and I was in the hospital for a week, uh, Sh- uh, Schneider's Children's Hospital on Long Island. I already had an interest in science, you know. I was already starting to think about, you know, society. You know, what what makes people healthy? What makes them unhealthy? What's fair? What's not fair? You know, the struggle for Puerto Rican liberation, the struggle for black and brown black black and brown liberation in New York City. And then, you know, I got thrown into this hospital. I was like, I, I was just, I was, you know, totally am- uh, amazed with, you know. Me personally, they were able to take someone that I didn't know anything about diabetes. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a week in the hospital, and I knew how to take care of myself. I'd give myself insulin, take my blood sugar. It was transformative, and and really from that point on, I said, I I, I think I can do this, and I, and I want to do it. Nice. So that was when I was that was when I was still in, in junior high school. I think that happened when I was like seventh grade. So I always had that, you know, I always had that, you know, interest that I wanted to. Uh, you know, you have to do your pre-med recs. You have to do your bio and your chemistry, and we used to have to do physics. They've taken kind of physics out of out of it now. The MCAT, system, <laughs> which is fine. I, yeah. I think a, a lot of those classes, the bio and the chemistry, they're they're weeder classes, right? They're there to convince yep. you not not to go forward. Which is a lot of what you know training for medicine is. It's like trying to weed people out. And then I went to Wesleyan University, which if, you know, you know Wesleyan, there's a very strong, you know, it's a conscientious (laughs) student body.
0: It is. My sister went. My sister went went, to what? She she went to Andover first and then Wesleyan. And so it was literally, it was like a prep reunion every time I would visit her.
1: Yeah. Wesleyan (laughs) has the most percentage of prep students. So I had, you know, I had, you know, there was the prep family there. Tammy Small was there. McConaughey. Right. My co- yeah, I don't think Conan was there when I was there, though.
0: No, okay.
1: I don't think he was, but it was you know a deep prep family, and then you know we we just had an opportunity to craft our own course of study, and I was able to do my pre med Rex, but you know in, like the bio said, I did a Latin American Studies major, and I did a sociology minor. And if you look at the history of Latin American studies, there is this confluence of of politicized doctors. So Salvador Allende Mm -hmm. from Chile was back. Che Guevara, probably one of the more famous persons. And and these people, their consciousness, you know, as scientists and physicians, they saw, listen, uh, ill health and disease does not happen in a vacuum. Right. There are causes here. And these causes are often structural. You know, I had this conception going forward, and it wasn't easy. You know, you're, you don't get a lot of cred when you're applying to med school if you're a sociologist. Nope. <laughs> I think that's changing a little bit.
0: Yeah, for you know the non-standard doctors. Yeah. But you're right. I, you know, because my husband he went to med school, and certainly it was you wanted to play by the books and have all of yeah. your T's crossed, dotted eyes, and
1: yeah, organic. I took organic chemistry. God knows. I mean, that I man, that's, that's I mean, I, I I love all that knowledge, you know. I, I love uh, biochemistry and physics. I think that stuff is, is fascinating, but often it it's not the 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 key issue when it comes to taking care of people. And if if we're putting the emphasis so much on organic chemistry and biochemistry, you know, and we're sacrificing
0: the, human the social context. determinants
1: of health, yeah. the human context, historical context, it. It shows. Right. So we have we have doctors that, you know, are able to analyze molecules, but they can't talk to people. You know what I'm saying?
0: I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah.
1: So. So. And in many ways, you know, part of the struggle that we're going through now is that we're we're trying to tell. And the students, in fact, are are demanding this is like, give us the education that we need to take care of our peoples, particularly our community. Yeah. You know,
0: or they'll stop coming
1: our black and brown communities that have been, you know, mistreated by the system for years, we want that education. And and the schools are slowly, I mean, just like in the prep schools, I, I, they're, they're, they're doing a lot of lip service, but I think they're slowly opening up to this idea that we have to teach people what are the foundations for health. And these are the things like the social determinants of health, where you live, learn, work and play is gonna determine how healthy you are. And if we're not talking about that, we're only gonna go so far. We're only gonna go as far as, okay, you've got X disease, I'm gonna give you X treatment, and then you're gonna, it's onto the next encounter. We're not really talking about a holistic sense of health.
0: It's interesting that you talk about this because and also hearing that you mentioned that your mom was an ESL teacher at one point. Mm -hmm. So I was an ESL teacher for a number of years, Mm -hmm. but I was an ESL teacher in a predominantly white district. Mm. So having to deal with kids who were bused in from Boston, Mm. you know, who came from dual family, dual language homes or families that legitimately, you know, we had a lot of families from Asia who would fly here, buy homes, start businesses, and there was no English. Yeah, You realize the similarity in not just naivete, but just the just bare cluelessness and assumptions that people make about those they don't. Understand, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're working within a hospital and you don't understand the culture, you don't understand the background of the people in which you're supposedly helping, you're not helping them. When I would Mm -hmm. see teachers do things where I'm like, okay, first of all, let's not use idiomatic expressions to talk to young children who don't have the same language that you do. They're not going to (laughs) get, take a seat. When you say take a seat, they will literally take the seat and move it and walk away with it. So you need to restructure how it is that you think about things. And it's the same thing in medicine. And I remember living at at Columbia University with with my husband at the time when he was in med school. I'm like, y'all are too smart for this to be making these assumptions about the people that you're treating simply because there's a slight language barrier or because they look different than you. And I hadn't realized... Until my husband told me that there was an assumption, and I don't know how widespread this was, that Black and Brown people had a different tolerance for pain.
1: Oh yeah, no, no, no. They did a study <laughs> in 2016. Right. They did a study of we... <laughs> residents in 2016, and I think it was out of Virginia. And they, they, you know, they interviewed people's uh, opinions about, particularly. Um, pain in black and brown patients. And there was beliefs like the skin is thicker. Yeah. They don't feel as much pain. Their blood coagulates faster. This is in 2016. This is not that long. Ago. Four years ago. To me, it's it's hard. I don't understand it. When people don't understand that medicine, just like education, just like criminal justice system, just like uh, economic development, all this is a system within a system. Yeah. Okay? And it's going to be All the inputs want to reflect that, right? So I often ask, the development of the US healthcare system, right? At a certain point, there were segregated wards, right? Mm There were black patients that were separated uh, from white patients or or different ethnicities. Um, Black doctors could not hold roles in professional society. They could not hold roles in hospitals, chief of medicine. And my question is, what do you think is going to be the result Hmm. of those circumstances? I mean, what do you you think is going to happen from that? Do you think we're going to have a system that can, you know, treat these people equally with respect, you know, and have similar outcomes? I mean, it's a a legitimate question. And if people don't think about that, then they're not going to understand why we have these outcomes that we do now. Now, my wife, particularly, her area of expertise is working in uh, maternal and infant mortality disparities in the United States. Mm-hmm. and it is it is it is painful and it is shameful particularly because the the birth experience is one of the most vulnerable experiences <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah, I, sure and, and i'm just coming from a man you know what <laughs> i mean like so yeah. i i deliver babies any words i'm going to use are going to be inadequate but it is such an intimate and life changing experience you know to give birth you would think that you would want that experience to be the most supportive, comforting. the most welcoming, <laughs> the most comforting. We're going to do all that we can to make this a positive experience. And in the United States, when you're giving birth and you're black or brown, that is just not the case.
0: And I will tell a story because I think sometimes people, you know, they hear stats, they hear facts and they read stories from others, but it's not until they hear it from someone perhaps that they actually know. And I kid you not, I didn't reflect on this in a negative way until well after the birth of my first son. And I mean, like, years later where I thought back and I was like, damn, that was kind of foul. So I had the most amazing doctor. Her name was Dr. Lakshmi Boxy. She was incredible. I Literally, I would like give my child to her if she said I must take him because I need to, you know, birth a hundred other kids. And I was like, well, this is the sacrifice I need to make because she was she she was that incredible. Like I would have done that. Everyone else, unfortunately, it was a very different experience. We were on Columbia's campus. So we lived Mm -hmm. in the towers. And if you know New York, the three towers that you see over the George Washington Bridge, we lived there. Mm -hmm. And I was a four block walk to the hospital.
1: It's like 168th, right? Yeah, exactly. 168th so Broadway. Right.
0: Yeah. And so, well, my, cousin, my cousin just had
1: his baby there.
0: Right. So, you know, yeah. I was a little brazen, and I was like, I could walk to the hospital. It's not that far. You know, yeah. that was my first mistake. Probably shouldn't have walked. But I walked to the hospital. We get there to check in, and the, the fellow... Why not? What are you
1: going to take? you going to take a No, right. oh.
0: I tried to the second time. I'll tell you yeah. why. So we walked there and was there. The resident checked me in. She checked the cervix. She said... You're not dilated enough. You're not delivering a baby today. Go home. That was the conversation. And yeah. I was like, well, just, let me just pull up my pants and I'll just be on my merry, water my yeah. way back home. <laughs> okay. Waited the apartment. And then I was like, this is super painful. This is not getting any better. So we go back. By the time we get back, they're like, oh, you're nine centimeters. And I had no intention of having a natural birth. We call Dr. Boxy. She immediately comes running over. Yeah. The. Anesthesiologist comes over and immediately starts giving me all sorts of just negativity, right? He's like, Well, how much do you weigh? And so I tell him what I weigh, and he's like, What? You weigh that much? Really? Yes, sir. I weigh that much. I am a little swollen with child. <laughs> let's, let's not shame me because I'm also hungry and in pain. Yeah. And then he starts saying, Do you have scoliosis? And I'm like, What? Because he's like, your back looks curved, and I'm like, I can't sit right because I'm having contractions. I don't know if that's playing a part. Yeah. And then he literally does five attempts at an epidural before he starts yelling at me and telling me that I'm moving around too much. And if I can't sit still, he's not going to be able to he's do not it. Not going to do it. And so this is all happening while I'm legitimately in the worst pain I've ever felt. You're in, in, la- my you're, life.
1: You're in labor. Yeah,
0: I'm in labor. So imagine I'm in labor. And not only am I in labor, but my husband is a medical student at Columbia. Yeah. So it's not even like I'm somebody who's so detached from the medical world where they're like, she doesn't know any better. It's not yeah. like, oh, she's not understanding what we're saying to her. But she you have to see English. what they
1: what they see. You know, you have to see, you know, what do they see when they see you? you know? And what and they
0: saw was nothing worth their extra yeah. effort, extra attention. There was no please. Thank you. Are you OK? None of that well, ever happened.
1: You know, often, you know, they have your whole life story, although they've never talked to you. You know, they, yeah. they've already assumed that well, you're this, you're X, Y, and Z. And the way that you're uh, manifesting pain, it's just because, you know, you can't really, you know, you're, just, you let, you're histrionic. Yeah. You know what I mean? They, they've come to all these conclusions before they've even talked to you.
0: And, and it, this, shows,
1: it shows in the way that you're treated.
0: And it does. And what it did is also it made the birthing process so stressful for me. Yeah, absolutely. That there was a complication. where, And I knew there was a complication. I see it in everyone's face. Every yeah. single person's face in there went dead at some yeah. point. And I could hear the heart monitors start to slow. And yeah. I remember thinking, like, okay, just stay calm. And I looked at Dr. Boxy, and she said, just keep breathing. They put an oxygen mask on me. Yeah. And I said, do whatever you can. And I remember, even though it was extremely painful, I was like, don't yell, don't make a scene, just mm. try to stay calm because you don't want them thinking you're freaking out and all yeah. of a sudden jumping ship on the process. So I was like, so everything I had seen on TV with the whole drama and we'll do yeah. whatever we can to save you and you know people wiping down foreheads, I was like, that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That wasn't happening. It took a long time to realize that my situation was not an outlier. Like I was not an outlier for someone yeah. who look like me, which is really yeah. sad, sad to think about. And in our current state with COVID and everything else that's going on, I can only fathom how many people are dying or not getting treated because they're in neighborhoods where the priority is not to yeah. take care.
1: The, the thing that bothers me a lot about it is that we're a system... And it, it's not always warranted, but we're a system, and you hear politicians say this, we got the best healthcare system in the world. You know, we're number one, which is not actually true in many ways. Um, just if, you know, if, if you compare different outcomes to different systems and life expectancy. But, you know, we take a lot of pride in this system at being the best. You know, you often hear that institutions, you know, leaders, and transplants, and innovation, and all this, and and that's great. You know, you want to see that. You want to see people take pride and honor their work. But it's very telling that in this country we have poor, inequitable, disparate outcomes in black and in black and brown people, and the system is apparently okay with that. You know right. what I mean? Because it's been happening for years and years and years. So my question is, where's all this talk about excellence, you know, and being the best and doing all this? That goes out the window. And and, and to me, that is that is a manifestation of structural racism and white supremacy. Right. When we are comfortable with black and brown people suffering and dying, and we just kind of like, well, you know, yeah. we're, you we're not some, happy you about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, you know, that happens, Mm -hmm. you know, like like it's raining or something or, you know, like your basement's like, oh, I want to see where we get to the point where we say this is absolutely unacceptable. unacceptable. This is unacceptable. We we are not only are we going to fix this, but we're going to be the best. Let's be the best in the world when it comes to providing care for black and brown people. Let's eliminate the disparities. And you know what? It's actually self-serving. Yeah. The, the system does better if everyone does better. So David Thatcher, he's the ex-surgeon general, did a paper. This was back, It's probably 2000, I don't know, like 2004. And he talked about what, where would we be if the disparity between black and white mortality was eliminated in this country?
0: Hmm.
1: Where, where, would, where would that be? And it's something like, you know, there's 300, I, I think this is a number, but it's like 300,000 excess deaths. Between the, mort- the mortality difference between black and brown populations in this country, we have celebrations about remembering the Twin Towers. You know, 3,000 people died, right? This is 300,000 people. I think it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It you know, is. and anyone that's a doctor, I think, should feel that. You know, anyone that's a healthcare professional should feel a shame that we have these but disparities it's... that exist in this country. We have to not only the minimum is equity, right? The minimum is mm-hmm. the same. We should we should insist on excellence. Just like right. in prep, just like in prep, we settle for nothing better than excellence. Our communities deserve the most excellent care. Now, how is that gonna happen?
0: That's, that's right? the question, right?
1: How is that gonna happen?
0: Because I look at different sectors of our country and I see the same inequities that, that permeate throughout, right? Like you look mm-hmm. at education. The reason that we have programs like PrEP is because we don't have the pipeline to the schools where we can access the education that we need in order to become the doctors, the lawyers, the engineers, the et cetera, the et cetera, the teachers who then go back within our school systems to make sure that we are all well-educated and are working at the highest standard. And so as a former teacher, I remember thinking I would fight with other teachers and other parents who would complain and say, well, I don't like that you guys have changed the program so that students who are at this particular level gain more access to education than my kid who's all the way here at the top. And I said, do you understand that if I can teach this student who, quote unquote, is at a lower level and I can teach them the content, guess what? Your student at the higher level will not only access that content, but I'll have the space to then also do other things with them.
1: Absolutely.
0: So if you can teach to the minimum, if you can provide for, if you can do everything for everyone, everyone rises above. But we live in such a society where everyone is so worried about me.
1: Their own, yeah.
0: I have to make sure that I'm getting the most.
1: We're just throwing away generations of black and brown kids. Oh, yeah. We don't even... Disposable. Yeah, we don't even care. We said, you know, social promotion... We're just, we're just totally discounting. And the same thing happens, you know, in healthcare, you have these chronically ill folks and they're, they're in and out of the hospital often. And, you know, they don't have the support and they're just kind of written off. It's yeah. like, oh, it's, they call them frequent flyers <laughs> They like, oh, really? go, you know, frequent flyers in, in the emergency room. They're here again. The problem is, is that we have not given healthcare professionals the tools to an, analyze, analyze these problems and there is a dearth of analysis when it comes to understanding these issues. So, you know, we're advocating very strongly that medical students, healthcare professionals be given some analytical tools to understand what these issues are. And then if you know what the problem is, you know how to fix it. But unless you don't know what the unless you know what the problem is, it's there's no way you're going to come there's no way you're going to come to the solution. Yeah, There's a I bigger mean,
0: issue at play. Solve it before it gets worse. And then people start dying left and right. It's absurd.
1: Let's, let's, let's get to the root causes of these problems. And the reality is that often it goes beyond just the clinical encounter. A doctor and a patient, I think that's a very special relationship. Obviously, I dedicate my life to it. But I can only honestly do so much with you in front of me and me working with you. Right. I have if, if 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 you are sick because you don't have housing, if you're sick because you don't have fresh food to eat, if you're sick because you don't have clean air and water, there's not much. I can't write a prescription for that. I have to advocate for those things that I know will benefit your health, and that's what we have to do. And and this is what COVID COVID nineteen blew, blew this up. whole thing yep. up because we saw that the populations that were dying the most that were predisposed to getting infected are those same populations that don't have access to these safe spaces and healthy environments. And it's, I mean, they're getting decimated, man. You look at Detroit, you look at Elmhurst. I mean, it's just whole neighborhoods are getting taken out. And, and these are and the same
0: people who are still forced to be in the workforce exactly. in order to provide for their exactly. families. Exactly. Because who do you think is cleaning the
1: hospital? Right. Who is cleaning the hospital? These aren't, the These aren't you know remote jobs. These aren't remote I mean? jobs.
0: They're not working from Google at home on a computer. They're out doing you... the dirty work. Go ahead. Who's in My brother who lives in Orlando, he got COVID. He drives a city bus. They They had provided no masks at that time. Yeah. They had no protocol. There was no open windows. Of course he got sick. But thankfully he was young and healthy enough to recover okay. But yeah. I can only imagine... How many people didn't fare so well? I mean, you look at New York City and you look at the number of people who work for the MTA.
1: Yep. Who didn't make it. Yep. hunch aside. school teachers. I mean, it's crazy. But heaven
0: forbid, we really talk about the crux of the issues and everyone's like, oh, you guys are just complaining. Like, if I keep I keep hearing everyone say, why does everything have to be a race issue? And I say...
1: You tell me. You tell me why it has I to be a race issue. I would
0: rather you it not tell, be a race know,
1: issue. The people that say that, I wonder, we didn't create the issue. No, we didn't. I, I didn't build these structures that, you know, if my name is Carlos or if it's Brad, you know, I can't get an apartment or I can't get a job. I didn't do that. I didn't make it so when I go to boarding school, people are undermining me. And they're telling me that, you know, the only reason I got here was because I was a person of color. The only reason I got into college was because affirmative action. I didn't do that. You tell me. You know, that's what I want to ask people. You know, they say, well, why is race such an issue? Well, I want to ask you, why is race such an issue?
0: You are naturally privileged as yeah, a white but, person but in America.
1: That is part of structural racism and white supremacy. That That is not a mistake. Like I said before, this lack of analysis is intentional. It's there so that people come to the wrong conclusion. They come not they don't come to the wrong. They come to the conclusions that are fed to them. These things are fed to us in our society. When we look, you know, you see on news, right, and. When it's a black perpetrator, the picture is up.
0: Always right there. the massive, you know, it's massive picture. There.
1: When when it's a white perpetrator, white collar crime, you no can picture. find it. You can't find a picture of the guy. When they kill Trayvon Martin, when they kill Tamir, they put all their pictures up, you know, and, and there might be Facebook pictures and, and it's just character assassination. You know, it's so never these,
0: it's never the picture of him at a christening, at, at a, a church graduation. at a family no. function. It's always the like I'm hanging out with my friends on a Saturday night picture.
1: So it's a system. This is the system that tells people what's bad, what's good. And that's what white supremacy is. White is good. Everything else got a problem. What did he do to get killed? What was he doing? And I I think there's an important point that we have to grapple with in this country, because we see that when we go to these schools, these schools fundamentally, places like Deerfield, places like Choate, Even down to who founded the school, you know, they had slaves, right? Oh, of course. John Williams, one of the founders of Deerfield. And it just came out that there were slave cabins on our campus that, you know, they knocked down and that that was Memorial Hall. So these places are deeply ingrained, you know, with white supremacy and structural racism. The question is, you know, do, do we, can we coexist? Can we coexist with these places? Can we coexist with a healthcare system that does not value our lives? And it's okay with us suffering. It's okay with the mortality, you know, where, where black babies are two to three times more likely to die. Where American Indian babies are two to three times more likely to die in this country. And, and black and brown mothers, they're okay with that. At a certain point, you have to ask yourself, I, I'm going somewhere else. Yeah. I, I, I have to do this myself.
0: But this is and- the conversation that we need to... And I say, our people, we need to have. You and I were lucky and experienced. And, and listen, I did feel supported. And I'm not going to... I had a great experience at prep. My experience oh, at prep was too. a beautiful one, a positive one. I found lifelong friends. Yeah, You know, Peter Bordenero was like a...
1: We love you. We love, I know. When I, I mean... I <laughs> You, you think about so many of these foul, you know, administrators and professors that never stood up and protected us. There was an experience at Deerfield where a bunch of students created the white students support league or something. I don't know oh, what the geez, hell it was. It was nonsense. like, you know, it was like the black, you know, the black student organization. And they said, oh, well, we, we, we got to have a white student. And I As watched if the rest kids, of the
0: school wasn't that. Yeah. But yeah.
1: No, no I know. Come on. <laughs> I know. I watched these students get up in front of the class and my professors didn't say shit. Really. They didn't say a goddamn thing. And I'm looking at them like you're gonna let you're gonna let these kids just talk about how they're white people are oppressed in this school. So I think about that, but then I think about Mr. Peter Bordenaro. Yeah. And you know how we, he was the opposite of that. How he was an how he believed in us. He did cradle us, he didn't baby no. us.
0: No, no he didn't. No, nope.
1: he didn't But he was know? like
0: but he was like he reminded me of my father in that kind of way. Yeah. Where my father was like, you work hard and you do the best that you can, and it wasn't always a pretty conversation to have when things oh, weren't going well. He kept was like, "Get your shit together, or you're yeah. gonna not, you're not gonna make it." And so but he was I, a
1: true, true ally.
0: He was. He championed for our success. He is. Wasn't
1: his. Wasn't his. He's still here. You
0: know, and I, I have to note, there was always this, like, rumor that if you invite Mr. B to something, like, he'll come. He will. He came to my wedding. I invited That's him. Amazing. I got the school seal prize at Choate. And I turned around, and there are there, Katie and Peter Bordenaro there. And I'm like, oh, my God. They're at my graduation. Like, this is the best thing ever.
1: Like, What's he... amazing is that he knows. He keeps track of people. He I does. can barely remember. I can't remember, like, some of my colleagues' names. But Peter could rattle off, oh, he's doing this. He told me about you. He's like, oh, yeah, love me this, this.
0: And so, he's like, he sent me the email. And I was like, oh, my God, you've been listening, Peter. That's amazing. And it also took me forever to finally call him Peter. He was like, lovey, you're a grown yeah. woman. Stop I that nonsense. Call, I still call <laughs> I still him his to
1: and, and his wonderful wife, Katie, Katie. And his kids and now his grandkids. It I was mean, a they're... whole
0: family affair. They were at was... every prep it event. Is. And I say but that I... because I, I want to do the positive spin before I say... Yeah. What I think is also necessary, as amazing as prep was for us and as positive as experience it was, I still think that we lacked what we needed as a group of kids to get to where we all could be, you know, because some Mm -hmm. of us, I mean, you succeeded in a very big way. But a lot of a lot of our peers, not everybody did. I mean, you it takes Mm -hmm. a lot. To make it through the boarding school, private school, pretty much white experience as yeah. a person of color, as a black and brown person who's fourteen and yeah, alone, that was a lot. you know, and so a conversation that I think you and I had, and, and that Ruthie and I had recently, it was there's a reality to how amazing it would be if we had our own schools, if we could you know, cultivate, because
1: because we went away, right? Yeah, and. And we missed all the stuff that was happening at home. And we came back and it was like, Oh, you know, your friends are still there, but but you've obviously grown. You're not exactly you're not unless you're you're very fortunate, you know, you're not immersed in that culture of boarding school. You know, you're not going to France for the no, holidays. You're, no. You're not skiing at Vail. You know what I'm saying? You're not I remember it was funny. People would go back, you know, they come back from, from break, they are like, Oh, where'd you go? I went to Bahamas, I went to St. Bart's. I was like, Yeah, I went to Jamaica. I went to Queens. Right. I like I Jamaica. went to St.
0: Albans, man. Like where are you
1: were. Jamaica Jamaica Queens. You know what I'm saying? Like so That's so you you're, you're you're deracinated, you know, you, you don't have any you don't have any people. But I agree with you hundred percent. What do we lose by having our own school, our own hospitals, our own clinics? And it's not like we don't have the capability and the knowledge to do these things. I mean, we know we did it. We know we, we know we can do it because we did it. And, and often we're serving other people's communities.
0: But that's right? the thing. It comes back to and this is almost aligned with the, you know, with this somewhat of a tangent. But if you look at the young basketball, football players who are getting recruited to colleges, right? Mm-hmm. It's all about the money. So you have these talented kids who get recruited to these all white schools because they can afford to attract them, to razzle and dazzle them. But imagine if they went off to the predominantly the HBCUs. If they went off to those schools, then those schools would be able to benefit.
1: Benefit. And
0: then that That seeps into the system of helping others. So when I think about it, if you graduate from med school, you know, friends of ours graduate from law firm, from law school, they get recruited because they all want the top black and brown candidates. They get recruited to the white firms, to the white hospitals, to this, that and the other, because you guys look, you know, everybody looks great. But yeah. where we're needed most is within our own communities to make sure yeah. that they're not left by the wayside. And so yeah, left
1: behind. Yeah.
0: that, that comes from the top. It comes from our government. Like if they're not going to supplement people. yeah,
1: It's just how long, how long are we going to ask and wait? I, I, I'm tired of asking and waiting for things and, and, and relying on the, the benevolence of somebody else to make the, to do the right thing and, and, and make the right decision. And frankly, I, I I don't want someone else taking care of my community. I'll be honest with you, because we we've done that already.
0: Right, that doesn't work.
1: I, I often think about this. How would I have patients that say that say, you know, I, I want a black psychiatrist.
0: Uh, yes. You know,
1: I I want a black mental health provider, or I want a black pediatrician, and I want to, and, and they ask about this for for good reasons. And, and I say, well, I know about this person, I know about this person, maybe I could, you know, I could, I could put the referral in, we can, if they have availability, we can get you in. And the fact that other communities don't have to make those decisions, you know what I'm saying? There's just an assumption that they're going to get, uh, you know, adopted. Someone who of. looks like them. Exactly. Exactly.
0: I mean, shoot, you can't even go online to look for a skin rash. And yeah. find you know, the, the, a sample that looks like you. Oh, do I have poison ivy? And I go online and I'm like, yeah, my I, poison I don't ivy know. don't look like that poison ivy. <laughs> like, where's yeah. the where's the skin yeah. that looks there like my a, skin? <laughs> there was a
1: great article in the New England Journal of Medicine um, mm-hmm. that was written by a Harvard Medical Students. It just came out a couple of weeks ago. And it's called Miss the Mark. I think it's that.
0: Yeah. The title, yeah. It's the on mark. the list. Yeah. I have that. Yeah.
1: One. It's incredible. And she talks about uh, erythema migrans from Lyme disease, and it looks different on brown skin and white skin. And we have to do a better job in education of showing how things look differently on different patients.
0: Yeah. Is that by Nolan? Was that how medical education is missing the bullseye?
1: Yeah. Which reminds me
0: that I'm also going to... post your article, which I think is a really great one, entitled "Soul and Breaths. So you co-authored that with your Uh, wife?
1: My wife, Rachel Mm -hmm. Hardiman, is the primary author. And then Rhea Boyd, who is an incredible physician out in on the West Coast, she's in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just getting to know her, but she's incredible, man. So Rhea Boyd, B-O-Y-D.
0: And this conversation is is a continuing one. This is not a one-and-done topic, mm-hmm. nor is it a one-and-done conversation, because I think there's so much more to build from this. This is the starting point. And so I really feel like we all need to come together and start determining what our needs are and Absolutely. making the changes for ourselves, because mm-hmm. we've we've left it up to too many other people to take care of, and it's not happening. No. And it's obvious that it's not going to happen at least in my lifetime, if we allow people to just do it for us. And so I, I think it's time to have these real real conversations about change. And it's it's no longer just an ideology. It's a it's action mode.
1: Absolutely. And and if you're a true ally, you have no problem with this. Right? You have no problem with people having self-determination and autonomy when it comes to taking responsibility and care for their own health, their own well being. Uh, what food they have in their community. I mean, I, that's that's what we have to do because we know the larger structure does not have our best interests at heart. It just doesn't. Let let us take care of ourselves, and and it's 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 easy to say and hard to do, but I think we're at the point in this country where everyone's out of a job already anyway.
0: Yeah. So let's it's a restart. Let's, let's reboot. Yeah.
1: Let's take let's take let's take community control over our schools, over our uh, law enforcement over our criminal justice let's let's because because I think we can do it better than anybody from outside of our community
0: well we know our needs yeah. and and we also know the faults like you and I you know we grew up in queens and and albeit different neighborhoods but it wasn't until I left queens and came back that I realized the massive discrepancies of what was available in my neighborhood versus what was available in in the neighborhoods of the schools in which I attended. Mm-hmm. Like I'd come home from break and I'm like, I can't get yeah. seltzer water. I can't get water. I can't easily access fruits and veggies the way that I want to without having to go to the special
1: yeah. fruit
0: like the corner stores just don't provide certain things. And so it's no it's no wonder why our population do you, is Do you lacking. know what that
1: causes? Do you know what that causes, Luffy? What's and it? obesogenic.
0: Yes, obesogenic!
1: <laughs>
0: Say it three times. <laughs> you know, I'm never gonna forget the pronunciation of obesogenic, right?
1: <laughs> obesogenic.
0: <laughs> oh, so, Dr. Medina, I, I could keep I, I talking mean, with you for hours. Honestly, like I'm just so intrigued, and I know there's so much more that you have to yeah.
1: to share. There's two two points that I could think of. One for the younger people in our community. I want them to know that they have all the capacity in the world to do what they want to do. And not only that, but we need them. We need the youth to step up and fulfill all their potential. And, and I think they're doing this already to an extent, but often we have to nurture them. And we need providers of color, you know what I'm saying? Yes. We need doctors, of, I mean, we need teachers of color, you know, we need judges and lawyers of color we need all these things and they have to come from our communities so it's our job again as parents as as elders as adults in the community to really combat and protect our kids because we can see that this system right now is just about chewing them up and spitting them out and we have to really invest and protect our children we see you know i was talking with my wife about this and and we were talking about again in the context within these prep schools where there's such hostility to black and brown bodies. I'm saying, you know, uh, it just dawns on me. That's, that's why the home had to be such a protected space. Yeah. You know, why we always had to get that confidence and that protection from home. And she's, she's looking at me like, yeah, you know, no shit. Like, of course, but it, it was so crystal clear to me that we had to compensate for that, Hostility outside of the home, society that doesn't value our education. Or excuse me, it doesn't value our intelligence, Ever. our humanity, our abilities, our fullness as human beings. You step out the door, and it's just not. It's not there. You we send your kids to school. Become and, stereotypes. And you, you, yeah, you know, it's just. And so we have to make those efforts at home, and I think that's happening. I I, I think that's really happening. I, I think people understand that that. That we have to do our best to support our children, and 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 we have to continue to do that because again, they are going to be the ones that are going to get us through this crisis, this this moral crisis that we face in this country. That's, That's number so one, and I think number two, we have to demand, as in this country, we're defined by our consumption, right? Mm-hmm. For the most part, right? What we buy, what we get. Uh, you know, I hate. I hate when they talk about patients as like customers. Right. (laughs) But they, you know, like our members are our customers. Ladies aren't our customers, they're our patients. I ask for is that anyone in this consumer relationship, demand of who is serving them, demand equity. If you are not getting equity from your healthcare system, if you're not getting equity from the place that you work, if you're not getting equity from, uh, the institution that you're having interaction with, you, you, we have to seriously think about what the alternatives are and then making it known that, no, I'm not standing for this shit. Yeah, You know, I know, I know exactly what this is and I'm going to take And you, you, and, and I think it's important that we make these, we put these things out in the open in front because so often they go unsaid. It you know, all like,
0: comes back to, we live in a capitalistic society Money talks, yeah. and the minute that you stop doling money out to certain organizations and certain groups, they wake up yeah. and they start making changes.
1: Say, I'm gone. You know what? If Deerfield, if Cho, if you can't take care and make sure our kids are safe, we're gone.
0: Yeah. Don't ask for Why? a dollar. Don't yeah. ask for a dime.
1: Yeah. We're Don't gone. ask for
0: any more students of color to come onto campus, and that's no, it. No, we're gone.
1: You know, these medical schools, if they're not going to teach us how to take care of our communities, guess what? We got to go someplace else. We're not going to these. We're, we're going. We got to find something. I mean, that's that's what I think is people are going to start waking up and saying, you know what, these places were not meant for us, and we have to make it clear. We have to demand equity. We absolutely. And we got to work for it. You know, we got to work for it.
0: Absolutely, and for those who are real allies, you guys almost have to be louder than us. When you look the part, you get through the door first. With that, I say thank you, Doctor Medina.
1: Thank I love you, saying
0: Dr. Medina. It makes me happy. Yeah,
1: it's weird. So my, uh, <laughs> I, I said my dad was a teacher, right? And he mm-hmm. taught I 44. And, I, and I, I think the culture was there. There was a whole bunch of like Puerto Rican doc, uh, excuse me, uh, teachers. Mm-hmm. They would all call each other by their last names. Mm-hmm. So they rarely said my dad's first name, but they would just call him Medina. Like, hey, Medina, call me a Medina, what you doing, Medina? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I often just have like I sign a lot of my notes, like I don't put doctor in front. I just put Medina. <laughs> so it, it's, it's weird for me to hear Dr. Medina. I know that's a convincing, but, you know, I'm like, yeah, just call me Medina. Like you don't have to be the whole
0: you don't need thing. The stuff.
1: Yes, you do. I, I wanted to say, Lovey, thank you, you know, for all that you're doing. You know, you're shedding, uh, you're bringing light and love and, um, you know, just uh, humor and beauty. Uh, and you're spreading that uh, around the world, and 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 I thank you for this. I'm I'm so proud of you. You know, uh, when I first heard about the podcast, I was like, oh, she's doing this thing. <laughs> first, first, I was like, why are you living in New Hampshire? But well, I was like, well, if yeah. you got to live in New Hampshire, you know, <laughs> I, I'm so proud of you. It's such an honor to be with you. Thank you for all that you're doing and, and your beautiful family.
0: Thank you and, so much. I really, this has been a blessing. And I and I say this because, you know, I get to reconnect in beautiful ways with mm-hmm. all the people who I consider to be my lifelong family. And mm-hmm. to say that I've known you now for a long oh time. Long time.
1: <laughs> before there was email.
0: before Right. Before, the, when we were still using coins to pay for phone calls. <laughs> yes.
1: When they were public phones, public yeah.
0: <laughs> Which now you can't get away with with COVID because that was just you. Yeah. But listen, stay safe, stay happy, right. and, and send my love to the rest of the family. And thank you so much. Thank you. All right, I'll catch you later. All right. Thank you to our host, Clovercrest Media Group, Kev from BK for our visual arts, And the fire intro song, Filthy, by TVP Records.
1: podcast system.